Let's get started with our second panel. You're a very good audience. You were back here before we were. Um, now, let me again remind you, uh, turn off your cell phones, please, or put them on vibrate. Um, we're now about to turn to our second panel, um, which is entitled Challenges at Home and Abroad, International Law and the War on Terror. Um, this term saw, of course, the uh, Boumediene case, uh, and there's likely to be more in the coming term in this subject. Um, this brings us to the um, uh, area of uh, the intersection between domestic law and international law. It raises very uh, complex questions, uh, in particular whether uh, these issues um, are better left to the political branches to determine or whether the court should be stepping in uh, on um, constitutional grounds and making decisions that have historically been left to the political branches with respect to um, the application of the Constitution to war in general and the war on terror in particular. And, of course, it's made more complicated by virtue of the fact that the war on terror does not uh, fit the normal paradigm of war. It stands somewhere between criminal prosecution on one hand and full-blown war on the other hand. In any event, we have um, also the uh, Medellin case, uh, which uh, is a, an extraordinarily complex case, and you will find a long and very um, uh, insightful essay in your Cato Supreme Court review by our own Ilya Shapiro uh, sorting out the details of that case, raised the question whether the president, uh, by a mere memorandum, can order a state court to rehear a case that has already been adjudicated, um, in this case, the state of Texas. Um, I'm going to just give a brief introduction to the speakers, uh, and I'm going to introduce them all at the outset so that the discussion is not interrupted. Um, you have a full uh, uh, bio of each of them in your package that you got when you came in, so I'll just give you a brief one. We're going to start with uh, Marty Lederman, who is Associate Professor of Law at Georgetown University. Um, he was an attorney advisor to the Department of Justice's Office of Legal Counsel from 1994 to 2002. He's a graduate of the University of Michigan, the college, and then of the Yale Law School. He clerked for uh, Judge the, uh, the famous, or infamous as the case may be, Judge Jack Weinstein of the United States District Court in the Eastern District of New York, and then for Judge Frank Coffin on the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. Um, he will be followed by uh, Jeremy Rabkin, who is now a professor of law at George Mason University Law School. Prior to that, he served uh, as a professor of government at Cornell University for some 27 years. Um, he was confirmed by the U.S. Senate as a member of the Board of Directors of the U.S. Institute of Peace. Um, he um, has his Ph.D. Uh, from uh, in government uh, from uh, Harvard University. He's the author of... Um, good number of books, including Law Without Nations, The Case for Sovereignty, and so forth. And then finally, we have Ilya Shapiro, whom I introduced to you at the outset this morning, but I see we have many more people in the audience for this panel, and so let me give him a brief introduction. He's a senior fellow in constitutional studies here at Cato. He's also the editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review and did a marvelous job in his uh, first year at that uh, post. Before that, he served as a, a special assistant and advisor to um, David Petraeus um, in the multinational force in Iraq during the last summer. 
Um, he uh, was an attorney with Patton Boggs and before that with Cleary Gottlieb. Um, he clerked for uh, Judge um, uh, Grady Jolly on the Fifth Circuit. He's a graduate of Princeton, uh, the London School of Economics, and the University of Chicago Law School. So let's now turn it over to uh, uh, Marty Liederman. Would you please give him a warm welcome? Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much, Roger. It's always a pleasure to appear here at Cato, um, and in particular for um, in this setting with in celebration of the publication of, of what I think is fast becoming one of the most important and best written and most well-read Supreme Court review volumes that out there. Um, in recent years, it has published a number of extraordinary essays. And the two um, essays on the Boumidian case that I'll be speaking about today are very much worth your while in reading, and I'll, I'll address at least Eric Posner's essay briefly in my comments here. I thought what I would do for those of you who aren't as familiar with the Boumidian case is um, put it in some context of the war on terror quest, legal questions that have arisen over the last seven years and the court's decisions, the other decisions of the court, uh, describe very briefly the court's holding, uh, then addressed briefly um, what I think are the mischaracterizations of the import or the, or, or the uh, problems with the court's holding that have arisen in the popular press uh, and in Eric's essay. Um, and then finally discuss, ju just mention briefly, and we can discuss this more in the Q&A, um, the two or three unanswered questions that I think are most important going forward. So how does this fit into the war on terror? And by the war on terror, I mean the armed conflict against al-Qaeda that was authorized by Congress on September 18, 2001 in particular, not a global war on all terrorism, but the armed conflict against al-Qaeda. It has struck me that there are six, a half dozen major legal questions that have consumed uh, legal academics, jurists, and the executive branch and Congress for the last several years. Um, the first four of which are not implicated, at least directly, by the Buminian case, but I want to distinguish them and then suggest at the end that they might actually be implicated, at least modestly. So the first four are, three of them are substantive. Uh, one is, what are the standards for interrogation that are legal or that ought to be legal? The torture question. The second is, what are the standards for electronic surveillance that are legal or ought to be legal? A question that, at least going forward, has for the time being been settled by the recent uh, amendment to the FISA law that Congress enacted a couple of months ago. The third question involves the standards for military commissions or trials. When enemies are tried for violations of the laws of war, are the standards and the crimes established by Congress in the Military Commissions Act um, constitutional? That's the question going forward. Uh, was the president's unilateral military commission system uh, constitutional or consistent with law? The court ruled no on that. So that's a question, too. But this case doesn't really involve trials of people who are alleged to have committed any crimes. It involves the detention of persons who are alleged to be enemy combatants. So uh, the fourth big question, the one I've spent most of my time on, is a great grand constitutional question, and that is whether Congress has the power to regulate the president's conduct of war, or whether the commander-in-chief clause gives the president some unbridled authority to, uh, of preclusive power to do what he wants, notwithstanding statutes or treaties that might stand in his way. That, too, is not raised a question not raised in the Buminian case. So what are the, uh, the other two questions which were raised? Well, number one, the very largest question as a practical matter in the war on terror is who may be detained? Who may be militarily detained indefinitely 
analogous to POWs or other combatants who are detained in traditional armed conflicts. And this is largely a question of statutory interpretation. Who has Congress given the president the authority to detain? And the courts are beginning, correctly in my view, to say that in answering that question, one has to look at least by analogy to the laws of war and who has traditionally been detainable um, under the laws of war in order to determine what the necessary and appropriate detention power is that Congress has given to the president. Now, that question was teed up. It was one of the questions presented on which the court granted cert in Boumediene because the Boumediene petitioners, six um, Bosnians, claimed that, that the president did not have the statutory or other power or authority to detain them. The court did not reach that substantive question. That is the principal substantive question remaining in the hundreds of habeas cases that are now pending in the wake of Boumediene. The court did not answer that, but uh, I'll put that aside. So what's the sixth question? The sixth question is a process question, and it's the one that the court answers. And that is to say, can the political branches take all of these other questions out of judicial purview? Can, the, can Congress and the president acting together with respect to enemy, alleged enemy aliens, aliens who are alleged to be enemies, can they say, we do, whatever the answers to these substantive questions are, we don't want the courts getting involved in them. We want the president to determine them on the basis of his judgment of what Congress and the laws of war and the Constitution authorize. Or do the aliens have a constitutional right to go into court to challenge the legality of what the executive branch has done? And in particular, in this case, these several dozen Guantanamo detainees were challenging whether their principal claim was whether they are, in fact, lawfully detained under the AUMF at Guantanamo, where they've been um, prisoners for over six years at the time of this. So what is the court's holding? The court holds by a five to four vote on this question of, that, the habeas, that the suspension clause of the Constitution and the implicit right to habeas corpus that the suspension clause reflects um, apply that there's no absolute formal legal rules as to when and it does or does not apply. That the question of the application of habeas is it got to be a practical one, a functional one, Justice Kennedy says, based on the, on the, on the particular facts of a case, and a partic- in this case, the particular circumstances of an armed conflict and the nature of the detention system that is at issue. So he rejects formal rules and says instead, the real question is whether there are any pragmatic reasons not to allow people to go into court to challenge the legality of their detention. The standard, the the default rule is you should be able to go into court and say the executive branch is detaining me unlawfully, and if you can make that case, be released. Um, And so the, the narrowest version of the court's holding is simply that, well, the court says, if these folks were being held, these folks are transported from Bosnia, these petitioners, to Guantanamo. The plane turns left at Miami instead of turning right. If it had held these folks in Puerto Rico or at the Navy base in Charleston, South Carolina, there would be no question that they would be entitled to habeas corpus right to challenge their detention. And Justice Kennedy says, well, Guantanamo is for all practical purposes equivalent to being held on the mainland. There are no, the only difference is that technically sovereignty belongs to Cuba, but in all other respects, total control and jurisdiction is, the, is that of the United States. There's no foreign law involved. There are no foreign sovereigns that really have any effect here. And, the, and most importantly, the Bush administration decided to send these folks to Guantanamo for the express purpose of keeping the courts out of the picture, right? For denying the courts any, ob, any um, possibility 
of determining whether the executive branch is acting lawfully or not, at detaining them and interrogating them and at the treatment of them. So the executive branch acts deliberately in order to cut the courts out of the system. Courts don't like that very much, and the Supreme Court holds that the formal distinction between sovereignty and not doesn't matter, and that therefore there's no pragmatic reasons that habeas should not apply to the enemy aliens at Guantanamo, just as it would if they were in Miami or Charleston. Okay, so that's the basic holding of, 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 the, of the case. In every practical sense, Guantanamo is not abroad. It is within the constant jurisdiction of the United States. That's, that's Justice Kennedy for a five-justice majority. Otherwise, Justice Kennedy says, the political branches, the executive in particular, could manipulate jurisdiction to keep the courts out. And the principal theme of Kennedy's opinion is that the test of determining the scope of the habeas provision must not be subject to manipulation by those whose power it is designed to restrain. What we won't put up with is an attempt by the executive branch to act in a law-free zone. That is an illegitimate government objective, but it was the Bush administration's objective here. So what is the response to the Boumediene decision in the popular press and, and in, in, in some quarters? Um, my former colleague, Pat Philbin, yesterday testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee that it affected a seminal shift in the law concerning constitutional rights for aliens outside the United States. That was the temperate way of putting it. The intemperate way was to say it was the worst decision of the Supreme Court since Plessy versus Ferguson and Dred Scott versus Sanford. Uh, John McCain was heard to say it was one of the worst decisions in the history of this country. Um, and Justice Scalia, in, and what, what is the particular thrust of this attack? Well, Justice Scalia in dissent argues that the decision is driven by an inflated notion of judicial supremacy. So this is a theme one hears repeatedly um, in response to Boumediene. And, and it's, it's prominent in Eric Posner's very, very, um, uh, very formidable essay in, in, the Supreme, in the Supreme Court, Cato Supreme Court Review. And uh, Eric is not at, at all um, intemperate in, in it. He, he is trying to get to the bottom of what he thinks is going on here. And he characterizes it as a move toward judicial cosmopolitanism. That's what he calls it. A theory that the, that the Supreme Court here, and Tony Kennedy in particular, are attempting where the political branches won't to give rights to people outside our community in the world at large who are outside our polis um, and to extend human rights protections to those folks in ways that the political branches are unwilling to do. Judicial hubris, in a sense, at bringing the United States into a more cosmopolitan posture with respect to persons around the world um, on a theory that the dem there's a democratic failure. Those people aren't represented in our legislature and therefore the political branches won't possibly protect them. I think that this is um, a mistake. I don't think that's largely what's going on here in Boumediene. Um, for three reasons. First is the narrow holding that I just mentioned, which is um, it, it's not a broad statement about the rights of aliens everywhere. It's saying that, and, it, and it's not unprecedented. The claim here is that this is an unprecedented thing. Well, it's not unprecedented. In cases like Kieran and Yamashita, enemy aliens who were detained in U.S. territories were entitled to habeas rights. And the narrowest reading of this case is simply that Guantanamo is, for all practical purposes, the functional equivalent of U.S. territory. But secondly, I agree that the, that the decision can be read more broadly, and I'll discuss this right at the very end, to suggest that habeas might run to other places as well where people are detained if there are no practical reasons that it should not. And in particular, if the court thinks that the executive branch is detaining people at a particular location in order to avoid 
evade judicial review. And so this is somewhat novel in some sense and somewhat groundbreaking and potentially very important decision, but I don't think it's because the court has changed. I do think there's been a groundbreaking change, paradigm shift here, but the paradigm shift was that of the executive branch. Um, and so this sort of claim is fairly novel in our history, um, but it's not, in this sense, it is not like Justice Scalia in dissent says, this is directly analogous to the hundreds of thousands of prisoners of war that we have detained since the dawn of time, um, since our very first conflicts, the Revolutionary War through the Civil War and others, and we've, they've never had habeas rights. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, as I suggested. But more importantly, this detention system is nothing like any other detention system that we... Is that right? Okay, well, I'll try to do this quickly. Nothing like any detention system we have ever had in, in the past. It is characterized unlike our detention systems in every other conflict. It is indefinite, it is incommunicado, it is inhuman, it is indiscriminate, and it's inconsistent with our historical practices. And this is fairly deliberate because the reason for this detention system is largely to glean intelligence rather than to keep people off the battlefield. Um, you know, I, I highly recommend Philippe Sands, Jane Mayer, and, and Bart Gelman's new books on detention policy and other matters within the Bush administration. The, the Cheney objective here was to get actionable intelligence from these folks. But we didn't know who had that intelligence. And so this was a much more indiscriminate, much more indiscriminate policy and practice of detention because we didn't know who would have the valuable information. And so we were detaining all sorts of people like the Bumidian petitioners who were Bosnians living at home in Bosnia who had been cleared of all charges by the Bosnian authorities and were handed over to the Americans. We were searching desperately for a needle in a haystack, someone who might have valuable intelligence about al-Qaeda. And so it was necessary to detain them, not like POWs were detained in humane fashion with, with um, means of, of repatriation and trading with, with, with their home countries and, in, uh, uh, and w- without being subject to coercive interrogation and the like. They were treated in a way that, that was intended to um, instill fear, in them to, to create a, 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 um, an atmosphere of dread and dependency in order that they would turn over information about al-Qaeda that we thought was, was, was um, needed. And the court knew this, and they, the court knew that this was a very different detention system. And in particular, the court understood that under our old detention systems in previous wars, there were plenty of reasons for the court to stay out of the business of uh, uh, there was no need. There were no, there were no habeas petitions because there was very little, very little challenge ever by persons who were detained. They were largely known to be enemy combatants. There wasn't much of a dispute about that. There was not the – I mean here, as a matter of fact, the, the Bush administration itself, the Guantanamo detainees, about two-thirds of them – have been voluntarily released by the Bush administration, suggesting that at least many of them were not lawfully detained in the first place. There are a lot of false positives here, and the detention system is intended to be a system for coercive, abusive interrogation in many respects. The court knew this, and that's why the court had to step in, because the executive branch had deviated so significantly and so dramatically from the detention systems that we've known in previous conflicts. I have... a great deal more to say about that, but maybe it will come out in the Q's and A's. And, and, and that, but let me just mention briefly, the three, I promise, the three questions that are unresolved um, that I think are very important going forward. Um, number one, does this, does this holding apply outside Guantanamo? Can the executive branch just 
get around this by holding them at Bagram rather than at Guantanamo. Many people have said this is worth nothing except with respect to these few hundred people because from now on the government will just hold them at secret sites. The court suggests, frankly, no, that the one thing it won't put up with is the executive branch moving people to particular places in order to avoid judicial review. Now, who knows what the court will look like when that happens or what the court will hold, but it's an open question. Secondly, what is the standard for detention? That's a huge issue that the court doesn't resolve, but it's being resolved by the district courts now in the habeas proceedings. And the third question that doesn't relate to these folks, these detainees in particular, is what other constitutional rights... The court doesn't recognize any constitutional rights except the one to go into court here, right? The the claims themselves are largely statutory and claims of ultra-virus detention. What other constitutional rights will aliens at Gitmo and elsewhere be entitled to? This might be most relevant most soon in the commission's cases uh, where they are raising ex post facto, bill of attainder, self-incrimination, and on right of confrontation claims in those trials. I'm doubtful the court will go too far at granting substantive constitutional rights to, the, to these detainees, but Boumediene does tee up that question. Uh, and with that, I will turn it over to Professor Rapkin. Uh, George Mason University is a very um, patriotic and public-spirited university, um, but it's a public university, so anyway, it was required to have its own Constitution Day proceedings. And my colleague, who was giving a speech to celebrate Constitution Day at George Mason, said to me, what is it you're talking about there at uh, Cato? So I told him, well, it's, it's mostly going to be about the Boumediene case. And he said, oh, well. You should just tell people that uh, that whole case and all the ink that's been spilled about it is less significant than what the Federal Reserve is going to do in the next two or three hours. <laughs> and I thought, well, I, you know, I mean, they might go to lunch in the next two or three hours, so that, that's not proven to be correct. But uh, you have the same view. I'm going to introduce you. <laughs> right. uh, that, yeah, that the real big question here is the... Uh, is the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve, boy. It's, is it constitutional? <laughs> uh, let me start, as Marty did, by, by um, urging you all to look at uh, the two essays on the case in the um, uh, Cato Supreme Court Review. Um, there, there's not only, uh, I think, a very compelling uh, piece by um, Eric Posner, but you didn't mention your colleague David Cole. I didn't. I I, I didn't, but but uh, David's is a wonderful piece as well. Yeah, um, and I, I think uh, I mean they both say this is not just a small technical question. This is uh, at least uh, expressive of a mood, and the mood that the court is expressing there, at least five justices who. who constitute the majority there, is uh, American courts have to be concerned not only about what happens in the United States. They have to be concerned not only about what happens to Americans. They have to be concerned about what happens out in the world. Or as uh, my left-wing colleagues at Cornell used to say, not in my name. And there's Justice Kennedy rushing to say, yes, yes, these are bad things being done in the name of Americans. And the Supreme Court sits to make sure that bad things are not done in the name of Americans. Uh, David Cole points out uh, 
it has never happened before in the history of the Supreme Court that it has said no to both Congress and the president in time of war on a matter relating to military policy in that war. This has never happened before in a case like this. So that's sobering. And it suggests, I mean, I would say that by itself is evidence that, yeah, they are shifting into a new paradigm or a new outlook of what they think they're supposed to be doing. And David Cole makes this other point. Uh, Never before has the court embraced uh, the rights of non-U.S. citizens held outside the United States from beginning to end. Again, suggesting a kind of paradigm shift that they think their job now is to reach out into the world and make sure that bad things aren't done out in the world by the United States. Um, I, I certainly agree with Marty that the court left itself a whole lot of wiggle room there. Technically, the court has not decided more than that well, Guantanamo is another place where habeas will run, and they haven't said where else. And they certainly haven't said what it is you get when you are allowed to go forward with your um, habeas petition. That is, what, what are the standards for holding people? Um, still, I, I think it is reasonable to think of this as, let's say, a straw in the wind, an indication of things to come. And so in, in my brief time, I, I want to... Uh, touch on three concerns that I have about this shift in mood or this shift in perspective. Um, The first thing is erasing borders or at least fuzzing borders means that what we do in war zones becomes a potential precedent for what we do at home. There's no way around that. What the court ends up saying would be okay for people seized in wherever they were seized, Iraq, Afghanistan, Bosnia, anywhere, Uh, the conditions in which they can be held if there's habeas review of this will apply in the United States. If you have fuzzed the difference between Americans and non-Americans or as a federal statute sometimes refer to U.S. persons, maybe not actually citizens but connected closer to the United States, if you fuzz the difference between that and somebody like Boumediene who had no connection to us except might have been our enemy. Uh, If you fuzz that distinction, you're saying, well, potentially then if it is okay to hold people because they are potentially dangerous, which is what the court, the majority said would be permissible if you could show really that they are dangerous and we'll see what kind of proceeding is necessary to show that, it follows that you may be able to arrest people in the United States who are American citizens who have uh, no criminal record and hold them in the United States because you think they may potentially be dangerous because, for example, they belong to an organization that's on some Justice Department watch list of potential terrorists. Uh, The one thing that I thought was most objectionable in David Cole's essay, but it was good to bring it out, was he said, well, Guantanamo can't be a law-free zone. And that, I think, was just demagogic. Uh, The reason why the Bush administration rooted these people to Guantanamo was it didn't want to engage a debate about what can we do in the United States. And I think that was a reasonable impulse on their part to say, keep this away from the United States. The Supreme Court has now insisted on bringing this home. We're going to face a whole lot of questions about what are we permitted to do at home. And I actually don't want to hear the answers, but I'm afraid that that's where we're going. I, I think it is likely that where this goes is the government for the first time will be uh, approved 
to have the power of preventive detention in the United States of Americans for some indefinite period. I think that is a very, very sad and disturbing thing, but that, I think, is where we're going. And it's where you go if you insist on saying, in principle, there's no difference between America and places where Americans are fighting out in the world. In principle, there's not that much difference between American citizens and the people who we have contact with because we're fighting. If that's where you want to go, you are undermining the sense that we have high standards here in America for ourselves because we are a political community, which we basically have a high degree of trust in each other. Maybe this is inevitable, but it's, it's, it's I think, regrettable and deplorable, and it's where we're going. Um, second thing, which is maybe more disturbing, is uh, this is going to, I think, undermine but certainly complicate uh, national defense. Uh, fundamentally, what it says is judges to a considerable extent, will follow the American military around the world and second-guess what they do. The background idea here, if Posner and Cole are right, is that the court just can't tolerate the idea that the executive or even the executive and Congress make decisions out in the world which have bad consequences, which are condemned in Europe at the Salzburg Conference where um, Justice Kennedy goes every summer and elsewhere. We can't tolerate that. Unless the courts have decided that it's really necessary. And if that is your standard, whoa, there are a lot of things that might come into play. I mean, fundamentally, the court is saying, um, I think we don't want to be excessively partial to Americans. We don't want to be excessively partial to the United States. We want to be somewhere close to a neutral stance between America and its enemies to decide what, what is necessary and what isn't necessary. I just don't think the courts are in a position to make sound or reasonable judgments. I am in no way suggesting that uh, they will knowingly and deliberately make America less safe. I just don't think they know enough to know what is reasonable and what is not reasonable. Um, David Cole points out, which was a very useful thing to point out, um, there's been some litigation in uh, Britain on a similar kind of question, whether uh, British military authorities could detain people under what authority in Basra. Right, there were British troops in Basra. What did they do? Well, what they did was uh, they stood aside while terrorists took over that town. They were completely ineffectual. They were worse than ineffectual. I think they betrayed the Iraqis. They behaved really shamefully, and I say this with more confidence because I've read in the Daily Telegraph people in Britain and even former military people saying the British military disgraced itself in Basra. And some portion of that, I suspect, had something to do with this ruling of the House of Lords that the European Convention on Human Rights follows the British Army out to Basra. Maybe that's exaggerated. Maybe that's not right. The fact is I, we have no way of knowing whether the House of Lords had an adequate understanding of the situation in Basra. What we do know for sure is that uh, the British decided that they would play it safe by pulling back, not being um, actively involved. I think it would be very, very dangerous for the United States to do that. The fact is the British can pull out, as most of the Europeans have decided they don't want to do fighting in Afghanistan. The United States cannot pull out and say... It's time for the Dutch to take over the responsibility. Uh, if there is such a thing as a war on terrorism, which I don't like that phraseology myself, but let's, let's speak honestly. I mean, there, 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 is, there are extremist versions of Islam that want to be in a war with the West. 
the West is not going to be defended by small countries in Europe. It cannot be defended alone by Canada. I thank the Canadians for being present in Afghanistan. It's a small country. It's a real, real issue. What can American troops do in different places in the world? The idea that this will be second-guessed by judges is somewhat disturbing, and all the more so if judges have maneuvered themselves into this situation in which they've got to look out for the rights, not only of Americans in America, but for everyone in the world to the extent that they're affected by Americans. Uh, The ultimate stake, and let me just speak briefly about this before I sit down, Um, if if, uh, both Posner and Cole are right about this, that this, this suggests the court is somehow embracing a kind of international human rights outlook, um, I think that's disturbing. I mean, and they're associating that with the Constitution. I mean, we've seen little indications of that, Atkins and these other cases, which say in order to know what the Constitution means, you have to look at what foreigners think now our Constitution means, but what proper international human rights standards are and read that back into the Constitution. We've had that debate about that. Cole says, I think, correctly, David Cole in his essay there in the Cato Review, he says... uh, the court in Boumediene is embracing a 21st century jurisprudence, a, 20, a, a law for the 21st century. If there's a different law in the 21st century than there was, say, in the 20th century or the 19th century or even the 18th century when the Constitutional Bill of Rights was written, you understand what this means. The law is progressing. It's growing. It's developing. It's living. If that doesn't make you nervous, you haven't been paying attention. What he means by law for the 21st century, he says this, is a law which no longer has clear boundaries. A postmodern view of law. And I think fundamentally what he means is a European view of law because that is where post-national, post-territorial, post-modern law really has developed a lot of momentum. And also they don't fight, and that's rather relevant. Uh, Meanwhile, the Islamic world is angry. We've criticized them. We've dissed them. We've talked about human rights. We've suggested they don't have human rights, and they are angry. It really gets under their skin. People keep saying, oh, we need to have human rights, which reach into borders, because after all, we've learned the lessons of the Holocaust. And they say in the Islamic world, why do you keep mentioning that? We hate hearing about that, which is anyway made up, as they say in Iran. You have a whole conference about it. It's made up, it's exaggerated, it didn't happen, stop talking about that. What about Israel? The UN, which has, after all, the prime responsibility for international human rights, or anyway thinks that it does, uh, I mean, it ought to if they're international, had this uh, human rights commission, spent so much time obsessing about Israel that even Kofi Annan said this has become an embarrassment, it needs to be reformed. As you probably recall, in 2005, they set up a different body, completely different, it would be reformed, it would be good. The Human Rights Council, uh, it dropped every other issue except Israel, because that's what they want to talk about. Um, Earlier this year, they took up another issue which I really want to talk about, which is Islamophobia. There's a lot of it, and it's, and it's really intolerable. Uh, so they have a special reporter to focus on Islamophobia. And I mention this for the following reason, uh, not to question anybody's claim to human rights, but just to say, uh, what was the European response to that? We're not on this council because we said, look, this is a pig pen. We don't want any part of it. Uh, the Europeans said, we really deplore this because what you're saying is people who criticize Islam shouldn't have the right to free speech, and that is not exactly our view. 
Did they leave? Did they walk off in a huff? Did they say, this is an outrage? No, they said, well, we can discuss this. When uh, Denmark allowed someone to publish cartoons, which some people thought were offensive to uh, Muslims, and the result was uh, half a dozen Danish embassies were sacked and burned and attacked in various Muslim countries, the EU said, this is really disturbing. Let's have regulations about anti-Islamic speech so this won't happen again. Uh, If this is where they are going with international human rights, uh, why would we want to be part of this? We're talking about, first, it's got to be progressive. It's got to be new in the 21st century. It's changing. It's evolving. And second, it's international. So we're going to be bargaining with uh, a lot of third world countries which don't have our idea of human rights at all and a lot of European countries which sort of have some overlapping notions but don't want to defend them because it could be scary and more embassies will be burned. This, I think, is what you should expect from an era in which we say our human rights depend not on our ability to defend ourselves and our traditions and our own constitution, but on some free-floating, evolving international consensus. Really, really bad idea. Gun rights, I see you have a panel on that. (laughs) That is off the table if you appeal to international human rights. Property rights, limited government, most of the world's not in favor of things that people like Cato are in favor of. A lot of Americans are. Most people out in the world aren't. Therefore, I say fundamentally our rights depend from the beginning not on the habeas corpus uh, provisions in the Constitution, but on the Declaration of Independence. We have to have our own country if we're going to defend our own idea of our rights. And that sometimes means we have to fight people who would attack us, try to intimidate us. And that means we have to have a military which is capable of fighting back. I am by no means saying the military can do anything. I think it is important to have controls on the military. The president should be held accountable. Congress has every right to come in and and impose restrictions. But the idea that the courts will second-guess what the military does and call that the Constitution, even though they have no precedent in the whole of constitutional history to hang it on, that's really disturbing. It's saying we've passed beyond having our own country to having some ongoing dialogue with the rest of the world about what rights we can have. I don't want to engage in that dialogue. Um, I think that was moderate enough. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, the two essays that they're referring to, the, our two previous speakers, are in the review. When we deal with a case that comes down that tends to divide people on our side, even here within the Cato Institute, what we do traditionally is uh, invite uh, contrasting essays, and that's exactly what we've done in this case with uh, Professor Eric Posner at the University of Chicago, uh, highly critical of the Boumediene uh, decision, and Professor David Cole, highly laudatory of the decision, indeed going way beyond that. You really do need to read the Cole essay to get a flavor of where this is going. Okay, we're going to switch now somewhat, but still stay in the international law realm, to the uh, Medellin v. Texas case, and Ilya Shapiro is going to be discussing that very complex case for you. Well, when I joined Cato, uh, part of the reason 
was because Cato hadn't done much in the area of international law and kind of what I'd been doing in my spare time, uh, the loads of it that I had uh, when not working at my big firm, was looking at the intersection of international and constitutional law. So lo and behold, I get this wonderful case, Medellin, which I was following, which I'd actually looked at when I was clerking on the Fifth Circuit. My judge wasn't on the panel, but uh, you know we examined the slip opinion and, and we're familiar with it. And uh, I ended up with the most complex case. It's, it takes longer to explain than to analyze. You'll see that in my, in my article. I think two-thirds or more of the article is just explaining all the twists and turns over many years through the Texas world, Supreme Courts, uh, the media, all, all, the, all these different actions. Uh, the, what, what's happened, as I will go into briefly, after the March uh, opinion of the court uh, through the execution date. Um, it also turned out to be, even though this morning I, I took pride in how accessible and, and you know, readable the articles are, I ended up with the longest article with the by far most heavily footnoted one as well. So I hope that doesn't detract you from reading it. It's, it's still, I hope, uh, you know, readable uh, and, and interesting uh, for you. As I said, uh, Medellin presented the court with kind of a, a law school exam of a case. If there's, uh, I'm sure, many law professors out there or on our panel, you're looking uh, for to, to write up your next exam, just uh, you know, change the names and use this one because it combines questions of treaty interpretation and application, federalism, separation of powers, and criminal procedure. It forced the court to grapple with tensions between international and domestic law, federal and state government, and the president and three separate institutions, Congress, the Supreme Court, and in what uh, then-Texas Solicitor General, who argued the case, uh, Ted Cruz has called a Mobius twist, the state courts, the president and the state courts. And uh, by the way, uh, last night I became uh, Facebook friends with Ted Cruz. He's my latest Facebook friends. If you don't know what that means, ask your kids or grandkids. Um, this remarkable case raised issues touching on every access of governmental structure, checks and balances, and the design of political institutions. It arose out of a lawsuit that Mexico filed uh, against the U.S. in the International Court of Justice, sometimes called the World Court in The Hague, about the inter interpretation of the Vienna Convention on Consular Affairs and its optional protocol. I'll define those uh, shortly. The ICJ issued an extraordinary order uh, directing the U.S. to reopen and re-examine the convictions and death sentences of 51 Mexican nationals who were on death row in various states uh, in the Union, uh, who had not been apprised, the court said, of their consular rights. It was the rare instance of a foreign tribunal attempting to assert the authority to bind American judges. And so the first issue the Supreme Court had to resolve was whether the ICJ could do this. The case took a further strange twist in 2005 when President Bush issued a two-paragraph memorandum to Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez, uh, formerly of the Texas Supreme Court, of course, uh, directing the Texas courts to put the ICJ order into effect. There was no precedent for a U.S. president to do something like that, either in the name of international comedy or to fulfill a treaty obligation. The second issue was, therefore, whether the president could direct state courts to follow an ICJ, ICJ judgment uh, in this way, regarding consular rights or, or otherwise. The court ultimately found for the state of Texas, holding that the Vienna Convention rights, an issue that Medellin did not raise until post-conviction federal habeas review, so not at the trial or appeal level, not at state habeas. Um, holding that the, these rights are not legally cognizable without congressional legislation. They're not self-executing. The court further held that President Bush overstopped, overstepped his authority in trying to enforce the ICJ judgment. 
Not surprisingly, this multi-layered legal controversy uh, produced very odd bedfellows. You had on one side Texas supported by states not typically known to support the Lone Star State's view of law or policy. Uh, one amicus brief brought together Erwin Chemerinsky uh, and John Yu, scholars not often on the same side of a legal dispute. And on the other, President Bush found himself supported by death penalty abolitionists and progressive transnationalists. Uh, 81 countries at one point joined amicus briefs supporting President Bush. Briefly, the legal background. What is this Vienna Convention? What are these consular rights? The U.S. ratified this convention and the optional protocol in 1969, and it provides that a foreign person detained by a country to the convention, uh, if he requests, the competent authorities of the receiving state shall inform the consular office, uh, you know, at the embassy or at the consulate, of uh, this detention um, and of his right to such consular assistance. The under the protocol, this optional protocol, the disputes under the convention go to the uh, ICJ, the compulsory ju jurisdiction of this world court, and the, which is the principal judicial organ of the United Nations. Each UN member, quote, undertakes to comply, unquote, with the decisions of the ICJ. Um, ICJ jurisdiction can be either general, a, a state, a country can submit itself to the ICJ generally, or for particular categories of cases under particularly particular treaties. The U.S. submitted itself to general jurisdiction until 1985 and uh, continued to adhere to its jurisdiction specifically under the optional protocol until a year after this decision that's at the heart of the Medellin case uh, when we withdrew. It's also not the first time that the Supreme Court dealt with such issues of consular rights and their relationship to state criminal law. In 1998, in a case called Briard versus Green, uh, the court ruled that a defendant could not raise his convention rights for the first time on a federal habeas petition. Uh, thus, uh, federal and state procedural bars do apply. Um, and even if the petitioners hadn't been defaulted by this. In this particular case, it was extremely doubtful that the alleged violation had any effect on the trial that would result in overturning the conviction. Then in 2006, while Medellin was winding its way up and down the courts in the case of Sanchez Llamas versus Oregon, the court, in an opinion by Chief Justice Roberts completing his first term then, held that uh, the convention did not override state default rules and the standard principle of criminal and civil pr procedure that issues not raised before the trial court couldn't later be raised on appeal. Moreover, um, in, in those particular cases, they weren't capital cases. They related to the exclusionary rule, what we've been talking about in the previous panel. And the exclusionary rule, the court said, was not an appropriate remedy uh, for this um, uh, violation of, of consular rights, leaving for another day uh, the issue of whether the, the, the convention actually did create rights, or at least an ICJ judgment, whether created rights that could be litigated in court. Okay. Now, the factual background. See, we're not even halfway through this. I'm going to try to speed through the, what's necessary here. Um, in 93, uh, Medellin, Jose Medellin, and it's not referring to a city in, in Colombia. This is a, an actual person's name, uh, who was born in Mexico, came to the U.S. as an infant, and was raised in Houston, didn't really speak Spanish, um, participated in a particularly depraved gang initiation. This group of six gang members uh, raped, gang-raped, and murdered two teenage girls, and Medin himself strangled one of them with her own shoelaces. The gangs left their bodies uh, in, a, in a wooded area where the police found them four days later. 
arrested Medellin. He confessed almost immediately. I believe it took three hours, which is important, as I'll get to shortly, and signed a detailed statement after being given his Miranda warnings. Uh, he was convicted of capital murder, sentenced to death, and uh, went through the appeal process. The, the sentence and conviction were affirmed. He then filed his first habeas, uh, state habeas claim, uh, and the Texas court, uh, affirmed by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, the highest Texas court for criminal appeals, uh, ruled that his Vienna Convention claims were waived because he hadn't previously raised them, but also, uh, in the alternative, reaching the merits of the claims found that Medellin had not presented any evidence that the violation of his consular rights affected the outcome of his trial and appeals. And this three-hour that, that he signed the confession immediately is important because under the Vienna Convention, um, uh, the, the, the provisions are satisfied if the consulate is notified uh, and if the person is allowed consular assistance within three days of arrest. Here, you know, Texas still had a few days to vindicate his rights when he, when he confessed. Medin then filed a federal habeas claim, uh, which was also denied uh, for the same reasons. Uh, then at that point, the ICJ reached its Avena decision, which said that the United States had violated these Vienna Convention rights and was obligated, quote, to provide by means of its own choosing review and reconsideration of the convictions. Uh, the Fifth Circuit still denied a certificate of appealability because under its own precedent, and this is when I saw the case uh, when I was clerking, the convention didn't confer individually enforceable rights. So it wasn't bound by the ICJ, but by Supreme Court precedent. So the Supreme Court granted certiorari to resolve this seeming conflict between the ICJ and America's uh, treaty obligations on one hand and court precedent and Texas criminal procedure on the other. After briefing, but before argument, however, President Bush reversed his previous position, which far from endorsing the ICJ actually involved a brief supporting Texas, reversed that and issued this remarkable memorandum. Two paragraphs, memorandum, not executive order, just dear Alberto, Here's what we're doing. Here's the, here's the operative provision. I'll read it. I have determined, pursuant to the authority vested in me as president by the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America, that the United States will discharge its international obligations under the decision of the ICJ and Avena by having state courts give effect to the decision in accordance with general principles of comedy in cases filed by the 51 Mexican nationals addressed in that decision. Period. That's what the presidential memorandum said. Uh, hearing that, Medellin filed a second state habeas petition, again, in, 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 in state court. Uh, the Supreme Court, not wanting to tread on state jurisdiction or, you know, realizing that new events have happened, uh, dismissed its previous grant of cert as improvidently granted. Um, the state court then proceeded to deny his petition again, uh, in part also because he had um, had consular assistance in, in preparing his first habeas ruling and could have raised it then. Again, he didn't ra raise it till successive habeas. But more importantly, because neither Avena nor the, nor the memorandum was, quote, binding federal law that could overcome state procedural limitations on su successive habeas petitions. The Supreme Court again granted cert on that. Uh, before the Supreme Court, Medellin argued four things, essentially, that the U.S. is bound to comply with the ICJ decision uh, because states can't uh, enact policies contrary to U.S. treaties. Second, the supremacy clause of the Constitution makes duly ratified treaties a part of federal law, which states are bound to enforce. Third, President Bush, uh, his memorandum was a valid and binding exercise of the executive's authority over foreign affairs. And fourth, Texas's procedural bar is preempted it's not that it's uh, overturned, but it's preempted by U.S. treaty obligations as incorporated into federal law by the Supremacy Clause. 
Now, Texas had several options for opposing those arguments with potential emphases on sovereignty, Texan or American, federalism, the federal government stepping on state prerogatives, and separation of powers, the president encroaching on Congress, the judiciary, and the courts. While each of these issues would be aired in the briefs and in an argument, it's no coincidence that Texas focused on the last, the separation of powers, presenting this case essentially as a grade school civics lesson on checks and balances. Therefore, Texas's main arguments were that President Bush, through his memo, purported to create law and thus intruded on congressional authority, Two, usurp the court's, both federal and state, role in saying what the law is, particularly in light of the Sanchez-Yamas precedent of just the previous year. And three, interfered with state control over criminal law while conscripting states to implement federal obligations. So all sorts of uh, yummy civics nuggets that we all could recall from fourth grade. Had the state defended the case otherwise, the narrative on the other side would have been about those cowboys running roughshod over, uh, you know, international treaties and not to mention how crazy Texans are about the death penalty. So to play better in the court of public opinion and with the media, Texas went went about uh, articulating Congress's authority to ratify treaties and make them have domestic effect and the power of the Supreme Court to make decisions about the Constitution. Again, judicial supremacy. To paraphrase what Ted Cruz says when he appears describing this case, how many times in your litigation career do you get to cite Marbury v. Madison as a principal support? That is, it's the Supreme Court that gets to determine the constitutionality of various things, not the world court. I won't go into how the argument went. You can read about it. It was fairly predictable. Uh, Remarkably, the decision ended up 6-3. In a magisterial opinion by Chief Justice Roberts, the court made two points. First, The world court has no authority to bind the U.S., let alone a state's justice system. And second, the president does not have power to tell state courts what to do. In short, it's the Constitution and the Supreme Court that define American law, not international tribunals and not chief executives. Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion is a tour de force of separation of powers, federalism, and international law. Justice Stevens joined the opinion – I'm sorry – Uh, well, joined part of the opinion, preventing this from being another 5-4 split, agreeing with the judgment, but recommending that Texas nevertheless comply with the otherwise non-binding ICJ decision for purposes of international comedy, not making the U.S. look bad and violating its treaty obligations, etc. Justice Breyer's dissent, meanwhile, employed a seven-factor test and found both the Vienna Convention's rights and the ICJ ruling judicially enforceable without further legislative or other action. Interestingly, he declined to speak, just punted the executive power issued, wanted to leave it in the shade, because as we know, Justice Breyer is a shrinking violet when it comes to executive uh, power issues. Um, In what will likely stand as the most consequential footnote in treaty interpretation, as with Caroline products, many of the most important uh, rulings of law are dropped in footnotes, the Chief Justice makes clear that self-executing refers to a treaty provision that has automatic domestic effect as federal law upon ratification without regard to implementing legislation from Congress. Roberts says that, quote, a non-self-executing treaty by definition is one that was ratified with the understanding that it is not to have domestic effect of its own force. Uh, Moreover, presidential authority, as with the exercise of any governmental power, must stem either from the Constitution itself or an act of Congress. And here, um, uh, the Congress explicitly signaled by reserving the decision to craft enabling legislation that the president could not enforce it. 
The only thing I'll mention about the dissenting opinion is that it was joined by uh, both Souter and Ginsburg. And Ginsburg, instant, uh, interestingly, while agreeing with Justice Breyer's dissent that the convention grants right privately enforceable, uh, privately enforceable rights, uh, she found, uh, unlike in Sanchez, in Sanchez Yama, she found that the exclusionary rule was not appropriate, so ruled um, uh, joined in the judgment in the majority um, for the government's case, for Texas's case in Sanchez Yamas. Here, uh, because in that case, the defendant indicated that he understood the Miranda warnings, which were given in both English and Spanish and with his life experiences in the United States, and so would have little need to invoke the Vienna Convention, which might ring familiar with the, with the facts of this case. But apparently that reasoning that Ginsburg employed in Sanchez Yamas does not apply to death penalty cases or two years later or however it, it works out to be. Um, that is not it. I know I only have a few minutes. Um, I'll try to get more of the uh, implications in, in in Q&A. But just to tell you what happened after that in the, um, in the few months um, after the court uh, issued its opinion, um, unfortunately for the rule of law, I mean, after these issues went back and forth again through the Texas world and Supreme Courts, um, the case revealed that much of Medellin's support, uh, and rem- remember, he never retracted his confe- confession, and nobody uh, least of all, he himself belie- uh, you know, believes that he's innocent, uh, was, first of all, support for global governance by unelected and unaccountable inter- international institutions, and secondly, backdoor death penalty abolitionism. And again, neither I nor the Cato Institute takes a position on death penalty. It's a very nuanced issue, but just in terms of procedure and rule of law, um, this is what the, the case was. Uh, There was another ICJ appeal by Mexico. Uh, Attorney General Mukasey and Secretary Rice, Condoleezza Rice, tried to convince Governor Perry of Texas to still give effect to the ICJ ruling. Uh, Nevertheless, at the Supreme Court ruled they didn't have to. Uh, Leading House Democrats introduced a bill to create rights for Medellin. Uh, The ICJ then ruled uh, in favor of Mexico in in an emergency session, voting 7 to 5 that the U.S. had not done enough and therefore had to stay these executions um, it, 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 what's interesting is that the ICJ could only reconsider this decision if there remained a dispute over Avena's scope, which the U.S. argued did not remain. It agreed with the world court that Texas had violated Medellin's rights. Um, but it didn't agree that the ICJ had jurisdiction here. The ICJ still found jurisdiction to issue this subsequent ruling by relying on the French version of the ICJ statute rather than the English one. The French version giving ICJ power to issue interpretations where there's a contestation, while the English version does so when there is a dispute. Apparently a contestation, even though it's meant to mean exactly the same thing from the same translated document, is a wider berth than a dispute. Anyhow, the federal district court denied habeas. The Fifth Circuit denied a motion to, for leave to file success, success of habeas. The Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, of course, found a, a, a consular rights violation. The second state habeas was denied. They filed more stuff in, this, in the Supreme Court. I'm rushing through this. The Texas Court of Criminal Claims refused to stay um, the execution. And uh, Judge Kathy Cochran on the, on the Court of Criminal Claims wrote a, an interesting, very short, but, but pithy concurrence saying... Most Texans consider death a just penalty in certain rare circumstances. Many Europeans may disagree, so be it. But until and unless the citizens of this state or the courts of this nation decide that capital punishment should no longer be allowed under any circumstances at all, the jury's verdict in this particular case should be honored and upheld because applicant received a fundamentally fair trial under American law. This is a plainly written differentiation of law and politics or policy. This court could not 
could no more stop the execution in consideration of a policy debate over the death penalty than could the ICJ bind the Texas court. Uh, in short, the Supreme Court ended up ruling 5-4 not to stay the execution or grant any more habeas, uh, and Medellin was executed on August the 5th. The court found that, that any potential remedies the Congress and the Texas legislature were planning were too remote, and they already had many years to implement them to justify a further delay. Breyer, of course, issued a dissent to that with a six-factor balancing test. Um, I will leave, uh, hopefully someone will question what the international law and executive authority uh, implications will be. I will end with this. While this may be endlessly fascinating, this case, for those who spot legal issues in every twist and turn, us policy wonks, um, the case was ultimately about resisting the tide of transnational global governance. While economic globalization brings opportunity and freedom around the world, Cato issued its report on economic freedom around the world yesterday, political globalization seeks to substitute the views of elite cosmopolitan technocrats for the consent of each nation's governed. Medellin, notwithstanding the court's sensitivity to international law and awareness of worldwide legal developments, stands for democratic self-governance. Neither a foreign tribunal nor the president can dictate to U.S. courts, federal or state. It'll be interesting to see how these opposed forces of globalism and judicial supremacy interact in the future, especially in the mind of Justice Kennedy. Thank you. Thank you, Ilya, and I'm going to pick up on that last point and put a question first to Marty and then to Jeremy. Uh, Marty, you said that the Bush uh, uh, administration uh, sent these uh, prisoners to uh, Gitmo, Guantanamo, for the express purpose, I'm quoting here, of keeping them out of the court's jurisdiction. Um, they really didn't have to send them to keep them out of the court's jurisdiction, at least ab initio, because they were, so the administration thought, and so legal precedent said, out of the court's jurisdiction by being in Afghanistan or in Iraq. And so the question is, uh, it seems to me, um, had the Bush administration done nothing with them except kept them in Afghanistan, do you think that the court would have reached that far with uh, its Boumediene and like decisions? Um, that's a difficult question. That's that, why I asked it, it, No, it's a, diff- I mean, it's a predictive question. I think that had Guantano been, Guantanamo been, Bagram been just like Guantanamo, that is to say, people being kept incommunicado without the usual um, attributes of our traditional detention systems, at Bagram for six years, subject to this sort of course of interrogation with uh, an extraordinary um, degree of, of, of arbitrariness in, the, in, in, how, in who was being held and how they were being held, and no mechanisms in place to check it, most importantly, including um, in, uh, a resistance by the executive branch to comply with the ordinary laws of armed conflict um, that had that the United States had had honored for two hundred years, I suspect yes, although Justice Kennedy makes the point um, um, Jeremy pointed out you know the implications of this are that the military will be second guessed by courts um, in everything that they do, and Justice Kennedy was very careful to say no that 's not right um, that that if any proceedings would divert for the attention of military personnel from other pressing tasks or compromise military missions, habeas would not. Um, be, be, be recognized, and in particular, if there are suitable alternative processes in place to protect against arbitrary exercise of government power. 
Now, I don't know whether those things would have obtained under your hypothetical at Bagram. I suspect not, but I think the court would have obviously been much more cautious about um, extending its holding there. Okay. Uh, Jeremy, um, your first point was about the slippery slope, namely that if the court waters down these constitutional rights owing to the practicalities of um, enforcing them under conditions of war uh, abroad, then it's likely to zip back and uh, do the same thing with Americans here at home. Um, I want to put to you this, that uh, Justice Kennedy, of course, focused uh, almost exclusively on the practical question. As Eric Posner brings out, he seems to ignore uh, Justice Jackson's focus in the Eisentrager case on the question of whether um, uh, non-Americans abroad are entitled at all to any protection by uh, under the Constitution. So if he is focusing simply on these practical considerations, why can't he make those adjustments when it comes back here and, and essentially you know, make these policy calls himself as he is inclined so often to do? Right. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's open it up to, to you folks. Uh, yes, this gentleman right here. Please wait till the microphone comes to you. Uh, identify yourself in any affiliation you may have. Make your question as brief as possible. And, gentlemen, make your answers as brief as possible. Uh, my name is C. Alexander Evans, City University of New York Graduate Center. Uh, this question is for Mr. Shapiro. You, you invited the question, so I'll, I'll go ahead and ask it. Um, you invited, you invited us to ask what the implications were for uh, international sovereignty in the, in the ruling. And so I'd like to ask you to, to elaborate a bit more on that. It seemed to me, I understand it was a brief summary, that the dispute was primarily over, uh, between the international court and the domestic courts, was primarily over jurisdiction applying in Texas. That's a slightly different issue than sovereignty, although I mean, they're related. Maybe, maybe you could say a bit more. It was about the, the applicability and interpretation of the Vienna Convention, its optional protocol, and the ICJ judgment result, uh, resulting from the U.S. being part of that optional protocol. Um, the court found that the, the, the judgment was not self-executing, was not directly binding, because the protocol was not directly binding, was not self-executing. Um, um, and the court laid out a, a different things to look at for, for uh, to determine whether a, a treaty is self-executing. First of all, and most importantly, and usually we don't need to go past this, is the text. Um, The text of a legal document is paramount, and and not to look at it is is folly. Then, this is actually one of the cases where it's appropriate to uh, uh, look at how foreign governments treat it, uh, because you're interpreting international treaties rather than interpreting the Constitution. Um, So, none of the 171 member states uh, to the convention, to the Vienna Convention, treats ICJ judgments as being binding domestic law. So the U.S. was not an outlier. The U.S. Court, despite what you might have heard in the media, was not an outlier in deciding the way the way it did. And there's a, a couple of other things differentiating from private enforcement. How, if if I win a contract judgment in France, how I can domesticate enforce that judgment against that company's assets in the U.S. and stuff like that, uh, versus public international law here. But it, it laid out quite clearly. Um, which hadn't been laid out before, what the meaning of self-executing is and how, the, how courts are to determine what rights flow from international treaties that the U.S. is party to. Uh, Tim? 
Tim Lynch with Cato. I have another question for Mr. Lederman and Mr. Rabkin. I'd like to probe your thinking some more on um, these jurisdictional issues with another uh, terrorism hypothetical, because it's not always easy to separate out the domestic affairs from the foreign affairs. Um, Ramzi Youssef uh, was the guy responsible for the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center. He was apprehended overseas and then he was extradited to the United States for trial in ordinary civilian court. And he was subsequent. He had a trial, was subsequently convicted, and is now serving a life imprisonment. Given what the policies we've seen from the Bush administration in recent years, my hypothetical is this: Let's say Ramzi Youssef is apprehended overseas. He's not an American citizen, but he's told that if he does not plead guilty to criminal charges in criminal court. If he does not do that, that he will be, then be deported uh, to a secret CIA prison site where he will spend the rest of his days. Would that type of pressure be considered lawful and constitutional in your view? And if it would not, why not? You want to start? Would it be constitutional? Well, f- first let me commend um, all of you to um, – there's a video on the Cato site of, of a similar debate on Boumediene the week before it was argued between oh. Jeremy and Tim Lynch, uh, which is excellent, and I recommend it to all of all concerned. Uh, and this question didn't come up in that uh, conversation. Could you threaten indefinite incommunicado detention in order to coerce a guilty plea within the United States? I guess that is... I think the answer to that is certainly no if, the, if, if what you're threatening is not itself legal, right? The government can't, cannot, cannot threaten illegal action to induce a guilty plea. Um, but something like that has happened in the Hamdan case, right, where Hamdan was urged to take a guilty plea or else he would be held in this Guantanamo indefinite detention that might well be legal with respect to him. Uh, I'm 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 not sure what the answer to that is. I guess I would suggest that the, though that the CIA black site detention prospect that you describe would not be lawful, um, probably in that form anyway. Um, making it frightening to him that he'll be there for the rest of his days anyway. I'm not sure that would be lawful under domestic law, and therefore it wouldn't be a a lawful condition to um, to offer in terms uh, in exchange for a guilty plea. But I'm out of my expertise here. I, I'm not sure that I have understood your hypothetical, but let me at least talk around it, and maybe I'll bump into it. Uh, I'll clarify if, if I can. Well, here's what's bothering me. I get it I mean, wrong. This is, this is the clarification. I mean, I don't understand why we would want him to plead in any way in a domestic court. I mean, how, how did that come into it? We were setting up military commissions so that we can try people. Why would we want him to plead guilty in a domestic court? Or did I misunderstand that? Well, the government wants to reserve lots of options. It's deciding to hold some people overseas, some people like Guantanamo, and it is prosecuting other people like Zacharias Massawi in the criminal courts. That's why the intersection of all these systems, there's interplay between them. Uh, and it's not – that's what I mean. It's not so simple as to say foreign affairs – domestic affairs, when these international issues are coming up in the criminal courts, and if the Bush administration thinks it's perfectly lawful to keep somebody in a secret CIA site, then I would presume that they would say exerting this pressure on somebody who's facing criminal charges is a lawful prerogative, and they're just playing hardball. But I I, wanted to get your view on it. Okay. I mean, 
this is not worth very much because I never thought about this before and I don't know a lot about it. But for what little it's worth, I mean, my concern, one of my concerns is to protect our criminal justice system from this kind of corruption. So I would like to keep cases like the one that you describe away from our criminal justice system. And if I were a judge, which is not likely to happen, but if I were a judge uh, and this case came to me, I think that I would respond the way um, Justice Jackson did in Korematsu, which is, you know, maybe necessity of war requires you to hold these people, but don't come to a court and have a, 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 a Article Three uh, proper American court say it's okay because – according to the standards that we have in the American criminal justice system, which you describe, isn't okay. It, my understanding is the reason why we're, we're trying to set up military commissions is precisely so that we can have a forum in which you can make the kind of compromises which we do not want to make in our domestic criminal justice system. And if that offends you, then I have two answers. One is we're going to try and reserve the military commissions for people who aren't Americans in the United States. So... Don't worry too much about it because it's for military operations involving foreigners. And second, if it still bothers you, uh, then you got to think hard about are you prepared to make no compromises to stave off the next terror attack? And if you say, well, yes, some compromises, I think you really have to ask who's in a position to make that decision. Historically, we've never thought when dealing with foreigners outside the United States, judges were in the best position to decide this. It's a real change if we say now that it is. But isn't that just the point, Jeremy, that it is because these are such tough cases that traditionally we've left them to the political branches rather than to judges and for reasons of competence, for one thing, and for reasons of democratic legitimacy for the other, because it is the non-majoritarian and the non-responsible branch. But unless it's a constitutional question, and that's just the issue that's at play today, is whether these are constitutional questions or political questions. Well, well Ken, there's a third option, which I, and if I can amend my answer, I think the, it's not constitutional or political, it's statutory, right? These rules, the substantive rules that are being challenged in these cases are not written by intellectual salons in Salzburg in the 21st century. They are pursuant to treaties that are ratified by the Senate of the United States and rules of the laws of war forbidding cruelty that are the result of U.S. precedents going back to the 18th and 19th century that are incorporated in treaties and in our statutory rules. And in this case, I don't know if it's a constitutional objection, Tim, but the, what the court held in Hamdi correctly, in my view, is that the detention, the purpose of detention under the laws of war and the AUMF that Congress enacted is solely to keep people off of a battlefield, to keep them from fighting us again. It is inappropriate and not authorized and prohibited by Congress to detain them for other purposes, such as to coerce interrogate, coercive interrogation techniques, to coerce a guilty plea. Or, or other reasons. It's an abuse of what Congress and the traditional laws of war that Congress has incorporated have, but, have but, prescribed. But, but, Marty, that hypothetical aside, you said it's statutory, but that's just the point here in Boumediene. Congress did speak. Yes, Congress spoke and tried to keep the courts from evaluating whether these detainees the were being detained, but the substantive claims is that Congress has not authorized this detention, and in both the Habeas Act and in the AUMF has prohibited it. 
well, now that we've solved this issue, um, we have to move to our next panel. Are our next speakers right outside here? Because we're going to move straight away. Have asked them to come in, please. We're going to move straight away to our next panel, which Ilya is going to moderate. Uh, and then we're going to take a break after that. Uh, please uh, join me in thanking our panel here. Thank you, Thank you very much.